Bibles tonight, and we're in the book of Exodus, and hopefully you grabbed the outlines, and if you're at home tuning in with us, maybe you have already downloaded, you have uh, the items that we sent to you, and of course we're in Route 66, and we're looking at the books of the Old Testament now, and notice them there on the shelf, of course we're in the ones that I would call orange there on the shelf, last week we looked at Genesis, tonight we're in the second and if you notice, those, there's five books that are stacked there. And so Exodus, notice by way of outline here tonight in the heading, the Exodus is the book of departure from Egypt. And that's where we left off. The last thing that I said last week was Genesis is not the end of the story. So we pick it up here tonight with Exodus, the departure from Egypt, the name of the book. This is the second book of the section known as the law, and it's also a, the second book of what is known as the Pentateuch. Now remember last week I told you about the Pentateuch. The word exodus means departure, is what the very word means. Now I think we have a slide, or let's leave it here for a second. Uh, again, there are, when you look at some of these maps, and there is, a, again, a little bit of discrepancy. If you want verification, the best thing to do is trace it through the pages of the Word of God, but uh, we understand that they wandered around in the wilderness for many, many years, and some of the path and where they took and so on, I usually will look at the cities and the places that they went, the landmarks that God describes, and it gives me a more accurate uh, understanding. And again, sometimes I wonder how people come up with some of the maps that they do, but you can see here that this deals with, up in, the, up in uh, my left, your right, I guess it is, is Egypt, and they're leaving Egypt's land now and making their way into the wilderness. They're departing from Egypt's land. Now, the one thing to understand in the Bible, Egypt was an actual place, but many times as a type, Egypt is a type of the world, is what Egypt is. So when we look at this, they say that, uh, that as you understand the five books of the Pentateuch, this is the second of those five and the Bible records in Genesis 26 and verse 27 that at that particular time when they were in Egypt's land, that there were 70 souls of Jacob that had entered Egypt, 70. Now I bring that up because the Bible mentions that and they claim, and this is probably a conservative estimation, that they believe that there were somewhere around 2,100,000 uh, people that left Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Now, when you think about the crossing, the Red Sea crossing, not the Reed Sea, but the Red Sea crossing, and you think about uh, the magnitude of that many people making it across that, that and God, of course, drying that, that seabed there so that they could get across, that is an enormous amount of people that left. And the other thing that, that I'm reminded of is remember what the children of Israel were doing when they were in Egypt. They were the ones that were providing all the work. They were the workers. Remember how they were under the taskmasters and how when Moses began to come to Pharaoh and, and basically from the words of God, let my people go, how that, that Pharaoh just got more and more aggravated with Moses coming to him and God asking him to let his people go. And so remember what, what Pharaoh did the taskmasters, they took away the straw, and so they had to work even harder. They would not let them 
diminish or diminish the number of bricks that they would make. In other words, the burden became more and more and more. Now think about this. When that many people left Egypt, who now is going to do the work? The Egyptians are. They were not happy about this, but nonetheless, this was God's way. And the Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse 22, notice here, in the New Testament, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of Israel, the children of Israel, and he gave commandment concerning his bones. So even in the New Testament, God gives the, the, the true fact here that there was going to be the departing of the children of Israel from Egypt's land. Now, how does, uh, again, if this is a continuation of Genesis, then we see the next thing in your outline there, that there is a connection between Exodus, the second book of the Pentateuch, with the preceding book, the book of Genesis, because Exodus assumes the existence of a previous record. In other words, something that existed before the time of the Exodus. Its first six verses in the book of Exodus are a summary of what happened in the last five chapters in the book of Genesis. Now, I'll let you go back and look at that, but it's kind of neat how God allows there to be a summary of what just took place as you come into this next book. What's also significant is that in the book of Exodus, there are references to creation. Now, remember, God's record of creation is in the book of Genesis. But in the book of Exodus, you see references to it. You see references to God's covenant with the, the covenants that he made that we covered last week with the patriarchs. And you see references to the 12 sons of Jacob. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter, verse 25, there is that verse in Genesis is directly quoted in Exodus 13 in verse 19. Notice part of this verse. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Genesis 15, verse 13, says that the seed of Abraham would spend 400 years in Egypt. The Bible says that, Genesis 15, 13. When you come to Exodus chapter 12, Verse 40, the Bible says, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt, notice this, was how many years? 400, okay? Now, when you go to Exodus 12 in verse number 40, you find that the Bible, there, there's a reference to 430 years. The reference here is actually to the covenant that was renewed to Jacob when he went down into Egypt to the actual exodus when they left Egypt's land. You find in Genesis 46, in verse 2 and 3, God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here am I, and he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. So you find there is a connection between the book of Genesis, and the book of Exodus. We'll see that as we continue next week with the book of Leviticus and then Numbers and then the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the contents of the book of Exodus, notice the principal things contained in Exodus are really the accomplishments of God's promises that he had made to Abraham 
Notice concerning the increase of his seed. It also deals with the rigorous, just mentioned this, treatment of the Israelites and how they suffered while they were in, in Egypt's land. It deals with the Lord's emancipating them from bondage, which the book of Exodus is the book of departure. And it deals with the ordinances, we'll see this tonight a little bit, of the tabernacle worship that was appointed to them in the wilderness. God was very specific about that. Now, when you study the book of Exodus, and maybe some of you, like me, spent a little time this week in it, reading it, and I encourage you, maybe next week, to try to read some or all of the book of Numbers, but note, or the book of Leviticus, but throughout the book of Exodus, there is a figure, there's a representation of the passage of the people of God out of what maybe I would call spiritual Egypt. Now, watch this. They were going through the wilderness of this world to victorious Canaan. And of this various things in which they must meet in their journey. How many of you have discovered that the Christian life is a journey? That, listen, it all began when God delivered us from our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But once we're saved, then listen... We will face things just like the children of Israel faced in their lives as they wandered around. Now, folks, here's the thing is that what we must do is we must do God's will and not wander out into sin. You see, it's amazing how much time they lost and, and how much energy was, was given all because of sin, all because of unbelief. And all because they would not do what God asked them to do. So when I say here that the passage of the people of God out of spiritual Egypt, listen, God doesn't want us to live in this world. God has saved us out of this world. He has called us out of this world, and he wants us to live for him. And understand that God is not pleased to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. To him it is what? It's sin. And so God wants us to live a holy life. God wants us to follow his commands and not to wander around and find ourselves in things that we ought not to. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Now, also in the book of Exodus, we find there are types. And I love, maybe you have done this in your life. Like, for instance, a type in the Bible would be a lamb. And we mentioned even during the Lord's table how you would have a lamb and that those sacrificial animals we talked about in the message this morning, that they were just a type of Jesus that would one day come and take away the sin of the world. You think about the brazen serpent in the wilderness, that if they looked to it, that they would live. And so we find, again, this is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look in the book of Exodus, there are types, particularly types of Christ, there are types of his person. There are types of his office. Remember, Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. And there are types of his grace. The grace of God is evident. I really believe that in every book of the Bible, you can see the grace of God and how God has always been so gracious to us. But there are so many things, if you get into a deeper study of the book of Exodus, you will find some rich treasures as you study it. Now, if you want to break down the book, there are 40 chapters. 
There's 1,213 verses, 32,692 words in the book of Exodus. The character of the book of Exodus is it's a book of the law. It's one of the five books that God has given that he used in the life of the nation of Israel, and God is still using it in our lives today to teach us and help us. The subject of Exodus is Israel's bondage, all that they went through while they were in Egypt's land, how that they were delivered from Egypt and their relation to God. I've given you some verses there. If you want to take time in chapter 6, 19, 24, 25, all dealing with this matter of their bondage, their deliverance, and their relation to God. And many times, here's what happens. As God is about to deliver his people, I mentioned this earlier, what did God do? God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. I I just read that a couple days ago over and over again. And, And the phrase there, hardened his heart, it literally means to twist with a rope. God just continued Really what God was doing was God was re- wanted to make Pharaoh reveal what was really in Pharaoh's heart all along. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so God again got the glory out of that. God was magnified when his people left Egypt's land and made their journey out of Egypt. Now the purpose of the book is to teach us the necessity, the method and the result of God's purpose. And we mentioned that purpose in the book of Genesis was the purpose of redemption. Remember how I said there's a scarlet thread that runs through the Bible? Well, you continue to see that thread running through the book of Egypt, uh, through the book of Exodus. And so we see here the necessity, the method, and the result of God's purpose in redemption. You see it easily in the outline. Look at this outline, just really two parts to it, even though it's 40 chapters. We see, first of all, the first 18 chapters deal with their deliverance from Egypt. Now, it begins with the first chapter there, how they're under bondage. The Egyptians are oppressing them. And then it moves to how that they are now starting to prepare for deliverance. A a little later on, and I'll mention this, but I was telling the teachers tonight, I said I was reading how God was giving instruction here in the book of Exodus, how He wanted the tabernacle to be constructed, and he wanted it to be made out of certain materials. And I I was reading how God told Moses, "I I want it to be this size, and I want it to be made out of these boards. God was very specific, and then he just kept saying this, and I want it overlaid with gold, and I want this overlaid with gold, and I want this made out of gold. And I thought to myself, how much gold did the children of Israel carry out of Egypt? I mean, you stop and think about it, gold and brass and fine linen. The Bible says they spoiled the Egyptians. One of the pieces of furniture that was in the tabernacle is called the laver. Uh, this is the way I guess I've always looked at it. Has anybody ever seen, we used to call them bird baths. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's kind of, a lot of times it's a round thing about this big around maybe. And it's usually about maybe that deep, and it's on a pedestal. It's just a stand. It's this thing on a pedestal, and it's full of water, and birds come, and they take a bath in it. The Bible says that the laver was one that, as the priests would go in, that they would wash themselves. It was a ceremonial cleansing. It was a reminder to them that they were about to go into the presence of a holy God. 
And so what they would do is they would stop at this laver. Sometimes they would take off their outer robe and they would maybe their hands. The Bible actually says their hands and their feet. And they would wash. Now what's interesting is, is that the Bible mentions that there was looking glass. And what they did, as best I could tell, was they took some of the jewels and they took some of the things that might be like mirror of the day and they put these pieces in the bottom of the laver. Then they put the water in so that when they looked down and they began to wash themselves, they were seeing a reflection of themselves. And they were thinking about who they are. You ever think about yourself when you come to church, when you read your Bible? When you pray, because when you come to church and you open the Bible and you pray, you're coming into the presence of a, of a holy God. I mean, God told Moses, take off your shoes. You see, everything God gave them, what were they doing? They were preparing to leave Egypt. We see when you get to chapter 7 how that's when the conflict with Pharaoh really kicks in. And, and we'll take a look at some of those plagues that happen. And then eventually, the chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12 through chapter 18, you see how they begin to leave Egypt on their way to Mount Sinai. See, all of that is Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Then you go into the second part of the book, and this is where, notice this, this is something of great significance. Israel's separation to who? To God. Now notice this. God gives the law. He gives his commandments. And then he instructs them about the tabernacle. Then notice what's next is dealing with Israel's sin. But do you see how it doesn't just end with their sin? Again, you see the grace of God in the restoring of God's people. And then you see the construction See, the tabernacle was not constructed until Israel was right with God. You see a pattern that happens over and over and over and over again in the Bible. How God has his way, and what does man do? Man corrupts God's way. And then God has to deal with man. Man gets right, and then God can work again. And that's what happens in the book of Exodus. And we see this now. Look, this is something that I know the book of Exodus is dealing primarily with the nation of Israel. But if you search the scriptures, even in the New Testament, here's what you're going to find. And this is not popular. This is not preached on much nowadays. But the Bible still teaches a standard of separation of God's people. It still teaches that God is a holy God. And it still teaches that God will not wink at sin. You see, the Bible teaches that there is personal separation, and the Bible teaches that there is ecclesiastical separation. You see, that's why our church, and by the way, we're not the standard, God's the standard. But people who do not believe this book, according to the Bible, we cannot fellowship with them because to fellowship with them is to accept what they believe. See, the only thing that we believe is the Word of God. And we need to understand, 
this matter of separation. It's not just something God had for Israel. It's for all of us. And we need to understand this even living in the New Testament time. So there's a simple outline. Now the scope of the the period dealing in the book of Exodus covers approximately 430 years. Notice from 1875 to about 1444 BC. And this slide, it's probably tough for you all to see. Maybe, maybe not here on the big screens. But you can kind of see there chapter by chapter. And of course, notice from chapter 19 to chapter 40 deals with that time period of Sinai where Israel is there at the mount and Moses is receiving the law from God and the pattern for the tabernacle, for the construction. God's glory is manifested in how God wants to be worshipped. But before that, we see the, the first 12 chapters, how Israel is in Egypt. And then we see that they leave Egypt and now heading towards Sinai and the Red Sea crossing there from chapter four, uh, chapter 12 through about chapter 15. There's, it's just a wonderful how you see deliverance and then worship. And by the way, when God saves us, he saves us so that we would spend the rest of our lives worshiping him. And that's why I really believe God put this on my heart about magnifying the Lord because it's not about worshiping man. It's not about just kind of doing what everybody else is doing. It's about lifting the Lord up and worshiping him every time we gather together to meet with him. And so we see this in the book of Exodus, how it begins with an enslaved people living in the presence of Egyptian idolatry, and boy, there was plenty of idolatry in Egypt's land, but look look at this. It ends with a redeemed people dwelling in the presence of an almighty God. And boy, it gets off to a rough start, but it ends in a good way. And so understand that is the scope of the book of Exodus. Now, the writer is Moses. If we go over to Hebrews chapter 11, look at these verses. The Bible reminds us, by faith, Moses, when he was born... By his parents, he was hid three months because they saw that he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now, remember what the king wanted? He wanted all the Jewish male children put to death. He says, I don't want any of them to live. And the Bible says his parents hid him. And by faith, Moses, when he was come to years. Now, that was the decision mom and dad made, but then the decision became his because when he, when he was come to years, now he, just like maybe Jesus this morning at the age of 12, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And I said, amen to that. He realized who he was. He knew what his background was. And look at the Bible says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. He says, I'd rather have Jesus and have nothing in this world than have everything and not have Jesus. That's what he was saying. He says, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. This Moses was a great man. And we learn a lot from his life. Now, notice here as God allows him to write this second book of the Pentateuch or the law, to whom was he writing to? Well, again, the target audience was Israel. Notice also, though, because God's word was given to all of us, it's also to the believer. Romans 15, 4, I shared last week, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And it's, again, it's a wonderful thing to see how even in the Old Testament we can learn something living in this New Testament era. Now, when was it written? About 1500 B.C. And notice where was it written from? 
Many believe that it was written in the time of the wilderness journeys. The Bible says in Acts 7, verse 37, this is that Moses would say unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to, uh, to give unto us. So again, we find when it was written, where it was written. The key chapter, I really believe, is chapter number 12. And of course, this is a, the great chapter dealing with the Passover. And we mentioned this this morning. I even think about our Lord's table tonight. I love the key verse, chapter 12, verse 23. The Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel, and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And God passed over them. That's why I mentioned this morning that when that sacrifice was made and then that animal was taken back to their home and they would actually roast it by fire, that they would sit around and this is what they would sit and think about, how the Lord passed over them and how God spared them and God delivered them. And again, notice the key word here, just like Genesis is the word redemption because of, of, of the Lord passing over them. Exodus teaches that redemption is essential to every relationship with a holy God. Look, we cannot have a relationship with God if he's not our heavenly father. And so we must be saved. And notice a redeemed people cannot have fellowship with him unless they are constantly cleansed from all defilement. God says, be ye holy, come out from among them, and understand that God wants us to be cleansed from our sins, and Jesus Christ is the one that cleanses us from every sin. The key phrase, pass over you. And we just read the verse there, but notice also in chapter 12, in verse number 13, the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are, and when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And again, this was all God's doing. The application of the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no redemption. And so understand, the key thought of this entire book is what? The making of a nation. That's what God was doing. He was making these people to bring them unto himself. And it's important that we understand the creation of this nation that God was bringing and the meaning behind it. Notice God's purpose goes beyond the creating of a nation. A lot of times people want to focus and there is some validity to focusing on the nation of Israel. But it's beyond that. It actually goes to the creation of a testimony through that nation for the sake of others. You see, God was going to use that nation. God wanted that nation to have a testimony. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. God wants you, as a child of God, to have a testimony for him. Because people are watching our lives. And the Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, nothing has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We may not be Israel, but God still wants to do a work through us. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And God is wanting to use a people for himself, just like he did in the Old Testament. Now, we see the divine intention 
of the book of Exodus was the creation of a people who under his covenant and under God's government should reveal in the world the breath and the beauty of that government of people who gathered in their life around his throne and around the altar of God are obeying his commands and worshiping him. Oh, would it be that every believer would obey God and be worshiping God around his throne the way that we should. God says, listen, if we would just follow the clear teachings of the word of God, what a difference we would make in this world today if Christians, I'll tell you what, God's house would be full. Every time the doors would be open, we'd be turning people away. But instead, we find that the church houses are empty today because people do not want to gather around the throne of God and spend time at the altar of God and obey the commands of God and worship God. They want to worship everything but God in their lives. Now, in this book, we find that the nation's ruler, talking about the nation of Israel, was to be Jehovah. Did you hear me tonight? Jehovah. A lot of times we don't talk about God as he wants us to talk about him, but that was Jehovah was to be their ruler. And notice the constitution of these people was to be the law that was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Its central meeting place was to be the tabernacle at that time. The tabernacle eventually gave way to the temple. In the New Testament, we find that it's not the tabernacle, it's not the temple, it's the church house, the house of God. And understand that when we talk about the church, we're not talking about a, a building, we're talking about the people of God. But see, God has always had a place that he has wanted us to assemble. And notice it's also about the bond of unity that these people would have, that it would be spiritual worship of the one true God. Listen, the church and those in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, their hope was the prophet like unto Moses, whose blood would be shed for the emancipation of the nation, as was the Passover lamb, and whose bones like the lambs should not be broken, who would come down from heaven to be the bread of life as the manna that was heaven sent, a substance for Israel during its 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. This is exciting to see what God has for us as his people as he did for the nation of Israel as they came out of Egypt's land. Now, what do we find for a spiritual thought? Here it is. Said it many times tonight. Come out. Come out for Jesus. See, God wants us to be a separate people. And again, I know that many times, and I guess I've been guilty myself of not preaching enough on separation. But it's something, again, that people struggle with in their lives, being separate unto the Lord and to separate ourselves from the sin of this world. Now, there are some things that I think are unique, and there are so many things, but I'll point out a few tonight that I loved as I was studying and reading again through the book of Exodus. Notice, first of all, these plagues. I, 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 every time I read through these, I'm just amazed. I, I, I sit here and think about these 10 plagues and how these plagues demonstrated the power of God. How over and over again, it's kind of funny because when they first begin, remember that Moses would do something and then Pharaoh would be, oh yeah, well, uh, let, me, let me bring my magicians in and, and they would come in and they would, you know, the devil's a counterfeiter, he's a copycat. And they would come in and they would do something and, and then God again would get the victory. And that happened a couple times. And then 
No longer do you hear about the magicians coming in because, again, no one can, can, can uh, withstand the power of God. And we see these ten plagues here demonstrating the power of God to Moses. It demonstrated the power of God to the children of Israel. demonstrated the power of God to the Egyptians. It demonstrated the power of God to Pharaoh. But notice how these plagues were of such a magnitude that they would be remembered for all generations. And look at these ten how that you see that the water was turned to blood and the frogs from the Nile and the lice from the dust of the earth and the swarm of flies and the death of the, the cattle, the moraine, the livestock, the boils and the sores, the hail that came, the locusts, the darkness, and evidently the final one there was the death of the firstborn. Now what's interesting is when you look at it, remember I said that Egypt had a lot of idolatry, a lot of gods, by the way, a lot of religions in the world today have a lot of gods, a little letter G. Well, look at some of these, and these are the actual gods. How that they had an Egyptian god of the Nile. They had a goddess of fertility. They had a god over the dust of the earth. They had a god of creation. They had a goddess of love and protection, a goddess of healing and peace, a goddess of the sky. They had a god of storms and disorder. They had a sun god, and then they had a protector god of households which that protector God, along with, along with all the other gods, could not help them against the God. You see, God was victorious in each one of these, and the number 10 actually represents a fullness of quantity. You see, what God was saying here was these 10 uh, plagues represented the fullness of God's expression of his justice and his judgments upon those who refuse to repent. You see, God will have his way. Remember what God did in Noah's day? And I'll tell you what, God still is going to rain down on this earth. He will rule and reign. And we're looking forward to his kingdom one day. But the plagues are an amazing, unique part of the book of Exodus. Another one that I love to study is the tabernacle. Now you look through the tabernacle, boy, you talk about symbolism and types. Uh, you start to read through there, you see the layout of the tabernacle and it's courtyard and how significant it is because what it does is it demonstrates, it's illustrative of God's prescribed way for us to approach him. Now, again, maybe you don't study this out, maybe you don't look at it, and uh, I ended up with two pictures here, so that, that black picture is not supposed to be there, but um, Brother Kenny, can you go pull that off? No, probably can't. Probably won't be able to, will you? All right, well, so here's what you have, and we'll see if you can maybe follow along. Maybe you've studied it before, but over on, on the right over here, you have the entrance. And as soon as you come in to the outer court, it goes blank. He may or may not be able to do it. I don't know if he can or not. There you go. Thank you, Brother Kenny. So notice, notice you have... The dimensions of the tabernacle, notice here, 50 cubits, 75 feet by 100 feet, 150 feet. And again, where did they get all these dimensions? They got them from God. And so notice that, that as you come in, you have the altar of sacrifice there. And then beyond that, notice that's where you have the laver. I just talked about that earlier. Then you have this structure that's inside the court area. And notice that as you get to it, there is, this is the beginning of what is called the holy place. There's a door there, and as you get into this part of the holy place, there is the lampstand 
there's what's known as the altar of incense, and then there is the table of showbread. Anybody remember how many, how many pieces of bread were on that table? There were 12. Why 12? One for each tribe. Now again, remember when, when uh, David, remember how David went and took of the bread, and again, you know, there were some, now the, look, those, those loaves of bread, they didn't stay there forever. Uh, oftentimes the priest, this is, this is part of what they would then eat themselves. They didn't have uh, wonder bread and all that type of stuff back in the day. But there was so much symbolism here. The altar of incense. Now notice where the altar of incense is positioned right in front of. Because right beyond the altar of incense was the veil. I love this. Now you see the veil would take you then into what is called the Holy of Holies. And it's inside this Holy of Holies. Can you, can you shove the, there you go. Notice right in the middle of it is what? The Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark was the mercy seat. And God would come down and meet on the mercy seat. The blood was applied to the mercy seat. And there is so much here when you think about this tabernacle, how, listen, how God is showing us through the tabernacle, this is his way of us today still approaching him. Because you think about this, Peter writes about how we are a holy nation, a priesthood. God wants us to boldly approach him, to come into his presence. Here in your notes, it says that a person could not just come from any direction into the tabernacle as he pleased. He had to enter through the one gate, which was always located to the east. Upon entering the gate, one encountered the brazen altar, where they would present an animal offering, a sacrifice, and then hand it over to the priest who would make atonement and then, notice here, intercession for them in the tent. This setup informed the Israelites that they could go only to God in the way that God prescribed. There is no other way. We must come through the way that he has provided for us, and that is through Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says in Exodus 29, look at verse 43, and there will I meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. And I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Notice if you go to the New Testament, what did Jesus say in John 14? He said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. As Jesus went back to be with the Father and the first century Christians were now doing the work of God. Notice the Bible says in Acts 4 and verse 12 where they said the words, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only way to come is by God's way and that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I love this thought here. And some of you might want to take the challenge 
to study the tabernacle, study the pieces of the furniture, study the way that God wants us to approach him, and you'll find a lot of similarity about how God still wants us to come before him even in this day that we live and in New Testament time. Now, how do we see the Lord in the book of Exodus? Well, certainly following our theme, the Lord is magnified in the book of Exodus. Five ways that I saw as I was going through. One, he is magnified as God. He is magnified as the I am that I am. Uh, the Bible says in Exodus 3, God said unto Moses, he says, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Remember what Moses says? Well, who am I going to tell them that sent me? Who am I? What am I going to say to the people? And that's what God told him to tell the people. Now notice in John 8, 58 in the New Testament, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. We see Jesus magnified as God in the book of Exodus. Notice we also see him magnified as our Passover. I shared this this morning and earlier tonight, how the Bible says in Exodus 12, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. In the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, the Bible says Christ is our Passover, which is sacrifice for us. Peter said without, with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And Jesus is magnified in the book of Exodus as our Passover. He's also magnified as manna. Remember how this wafer, this strange thing started to fall and started to fall on the ground. And they looked at it and said, what is it? The Bible says in Exodus 16 that when the dew that, was, that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness, there was a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, it is manna, for they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, look at these words, this is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. In the New Testament, Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Jesus is magnified in the book of Exodus as manna. He's magnified as rock in Exodus 17 and verse 6. Behold, I stand before thee with uh, there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And Paul wrote to those in Corinth, and he said, all did drink that same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them. And that rock, capital R, was Christ. Jesus is magnified as rock. And then we just saw in the tabernacle the veil that is there separating the holy from the holy of holies. And notice the Bible says in Exodus 26, and thou shalt hang up the veil uh, under the tatches, that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And the Bible says over in Hebrews chapter number 10, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, read the rest of it, that is his flesh. You know what the veil was? It was Jesus' own body that he gave, the sacrifice that we just recognized and remembered. 
You see, there is so much about the Lord and how He is magnified in the book of Exodus. We see in this book how God brings His people out of an oppression, a laboring for the world into the glorious freedom of the children of God. What was God doing? He was bringing them out so that He could bring them unto Himself. You see the picture here of the, 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 the tribes of Israel and how that they would set up the camps around the tabernacle. And there was a positioning. Maybe you can spend some time looking at which tribes were on which side and how that they were all set up and how every time that God said it was time to move, they packed up all of this. And they would travel until God would say, okay, it's time to set up the tabernacle. And they would set it up and again, it probably didn't look exactly like this, but this is illustrative of how God would come down in the Holy of Holies, and God would meet with them. You see, as God took them from, from uh, Egypt, it was not a freedom from working, and certainly they were under the bondage of Egypt. But when God brought them out of Egypt, it was a freedom to love Him. It was a freedom for them to serve Him through work in every aspect of life, God has saved you to serve him. And understand that we have liberty because of what Jesus has done for us. God provides guidance for life and labor that will glorify him and it will bless the nation of Israel. And I love this, how God provides a place, think about this, for his presence to be among us. Emmanuel. God with us. The book of Exodus, it's not just one of those books that you got to struggle through when you're reading your Bible. There is so much here in this book. And I hope that maybe tonight through our overview, that maybe it challenged you, encouraged you to want to go and study some of these things so that you can get closer to God. Because God has a prescribed way that he wants all of us to come to him. May God be magnified in our lives through his word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the rich book of Exodus. Thank you for allowing Moses to record these words. I'm thankful that even though its primary audience was the nation of Israel, that I find so many applications and so much parallelism for my own life today as a Christian. God, I pray that you'd help us to be a people that understand how holy you are. I'm so glad that, Lord, that we don't have to let someone else go through a veil and make an atonement for us anymore. But I'm glad for the fact that Jesus did that for us once. The Bible says that we can come to you, our Father, through the Son. Lord, again, thank you. Thank you again for delivering us from our sins that we might serve you and love you because you are worthy. Lord, be with us this week. Help us to live for you. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.